And hello from Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News. It's the Extra Credit Podcast, your weekly look at education, and in this case, looking back at politics and a busy Tuesday of elections. I'm Kevin. And I'm Clark. And we got a lot to go over from Tuesday night's elections, and we're going to start, well, where else do you start? Uh, but our, our friends at the West Ada School District, more turnover, two trustees voted out. Clark, you spent some time Wednesday trying to figure out, well, where does the state's largest district go from here? Yeah, the the shakeup continues um, in West Ada, just down the road from us. Uh, just a quick recap. Uh, I know a lot of you know this by now, but on Tuesday, trustees voted to recall both school board members, both school trustees, uh, Tina Dean and Carol Sales, that were targeted for recall. Those succeeded with more than 62 uh, percent of people voting in favor of each recall. Talked to some folks at the district on Wednesday, like you said, and they hope to move quickly, Kevin, uh, to get their board back up to full strength. They've got a meeting coming up June 10th. They've targeted that for swearing in two new board members. And so to get to that point, first of all, uh, from where we're talking right now, the recalled trustees are technically still school board members right. until county officials certify election results. They expect that Monday, Tuesday of next week. To the point that the recalled trustees took part in a meeting on Thursday night. Right, absolutely. And uh, so once that is certified, once they receive official notification from the county, on about the 24th, they expect to post applications on the district website for folks who would be interested in filling those trustees' vacancies. You have to live within the zone of the recalled trustee, be a registered voter, be 18 years of age or older, and then they will collect those, start vetting the applications in an open meeting. And Kevin, this is interesting. Everything West Ada does until they appoint at least one new member by law has to be an open meeting. No more right. closed door executive sessions to discuss personnel issues uh, or anything like that because with only three of five members intact right now, after the election is certified, they won't be able to go into executive session. So expect applications to be up next week and then open meetings to vet the applicants, and they'll move quickly. Right, and and to some degree that, that, that hand is forced by what you were talking about with the executive session law and the uh, Attorney General's opinion that a school board of three members cannot go into executive session. And, you know, as reporters, our hackles always go up when we hear about executive sessions. Right. But in fairness, there are some issues that school boards do discuss in executive session that uh, are would be pretty difficult to broach in an open session, and student discipline, uh, legal issues. I mean, those Termination are the, the, right. I mean, some of these issues are, while they're they're juicy, they're probably issues that, uh, for good reason, school boards want to try to talk about in a closed session. So that's probably driving some of the fast track here, and it is fast track because you know this isn't our first recall rodeo around here. I mean, we had this in Caldwell last fall. Uh, two trustees were recalled in November. It took until January. Caldwell to get its school board back up to speed. So, so West Ada is trying to move quickly. And the law does give them 90 days, so we'll see if they get it done by June 10th. Certainly they don't have to get it finished up by June 10th, but I know that they would like to. And I talked to Mike Buitenay, uh, now the longest-serving member of the West Ada School Board, originally targeted for a recall, but it was dropped early in the process before it ever mm -hmm. went to voters. 
And and Buitenay was supportive of the recalls passing on Tuesday night, but he did talk about, I think now, uh, that there's an opportunity for the new school board, working with new superintendent Marianne Reynolds, to begin earning the trust back from residents, parents, patrons, taxpayers within the district. And, and Mike Buitenay told me something interesting at the end of our interview on Wednesday. He said, if you're looking for some sort of a silver lining or, or a rainbow at the end of the thunderstorm here, it's that our constituents are paying attention and that parents and patrons within West Ada now know uh, what the school board means to this community and the responsibilities they shoulder. So he says the community is engaged. Hopefully now the turmoil and chaos is behind them and, and that they can uh, get their board back up to speed to work with their new superintendent. And if you look at it, uh, the acting board chairman, uh, Philip Newhoff, uh, was just appointed in February. So right. a lot of still very new leadership, new faces heading up uh, the largest school district in Idaho. Newhoff new will now rank second on the school board in terms of seniority uh, three months into the job. Yeah, I, I think it's worth, before we move on to other topics here, to just sort of take a step back and, and reflect that this is a very significant uh, story that we've been dealing with over the past year. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of an unprecedented level of turnover at a district this large and, and level of political intrigue and controversy surrounding a school board. You know, this is a district that, that deals with a lot of other issues uh, just by the sheer magnitude of the district, the size of the district, the growth that continues to go on in that They're district. They're trying to build two new schools right now in that school district. We, we didn't mention it yet on, on Extra Credit today, but they had two trustees resign who would have been targeted for mm -hmm. recalls. So if you go back 12 months, we're talking about what will soon be four new school trustees and a new school superintendent. A new superintendent to deal with a lot of... Uh, pressing issues, a lot of lingering issues. Uh, now, so there will be a lot for us to follow and a lot to watch as this uh, new board tries to move on from what's been a very, very contentious and a very bitter battle out in West Data. Moving on to uh, elections that were less contentious and less bitter in, in terms of school elections, a pretty uh, solid night in terms of supplemental levies around the state. Uh, a quick recap on this. You had uh, 25 school districts uh, run either bond issues or supplemental levies. And on the supplemental levy front, uh, the scorecard, 19 districts were able to pass their supplementals. Only one uh, fell short of the majority that you need to pass a supplemental. And that's the Wilder School District in, uh, in Canyon County. Um, a district that's had some trouble passing supplemental levies in the past. It's a district with some of the highest poverty rates in the state. So it'll bear watching to see what happens next in the Wilder School District in terms of do they have to cut some, some programs out of the budget? Do they come back in August with another uh, supplemental? We're, we're following up on that, so keep an eye out for uh, what we find out on that. But uh, just to, to quickly recap, uh, for a lot of districts around the state, uh, a sigh of relief for for them as they renew their levies for another year or two. And this was, Kevin, this was something that you really focused on, the levies and handful of bond issues from around the state. But this is now several election cycles in a row, is it not, where local residents have voted uh, to increase their own taxes uh, to, to pay for um, school districts, to help them out with their supplemental levies. 
Do, do you find that interesting? That's a little bit of a conversation uh, that we heard some legislative candidates talk about. School funding issue, I know there's also uh, school funding is going to take center stage mm -hmm. this summer. Well, yeah, and, and, and the number of districts, I mean, we're still well above 90 school districts around the state with supplemental levies. Uh, a lot of these are renewals, but sometimes the renewal process is is itself controversial. I mean, you know, Wilder was trying to renew a, a supplemental levy on Tuesday, I believe. The the figure they were going for, the 500000 was actually a reduction from the old levy. So this is sometimes a very controversial and sometimes a difficult process to try to get a levy through. Um, you know, it's not always, uh, you know, nothing guaranteed when you go to voters and you try to get uh, a renewal of a levy or a new levy. So, uh, again, the, the reliance on supplemental levies continues even as uh, the state has restored some funding. You know, we'll, we'll see this continue and we'll see the debate about supplemental levies continue uh, with uh, the legislature reviewing the school funding formula with, uh, you know, with the debate over how to fund schools in the future. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the legislature, and I want to go there next. I want to talk about, we were up, Kevin, until 1.30 uh, in the morning, Tuesday, bleeding into Wednesday, tracking uh, results. By and large, it was a good night for legislative incumbents. And so let's talk about a handful of the trends and some of the key mm -hmm. results that we saw uh Tuesday night, I guess I'll start off and then kick it back to you. I was following the House Education Committee. There were five members of the House Education that were facing primary opponents. Four of those five, Kevin, survived primary challenges. Only Representative Rich Wills, who served seven terms in the legislature, also a committee chairman, uh, he lost uh, in, in his primary race, but four of the five uh, did survive. So there's a lot of stability within the House Education Committee. Even so, there's going to be at least two new members next year, because if you remember, the chairman, Reed DeMordaunt, right. was not running for re-election, and his wife, Gayanne DeMordaunt, won a primary race for that seat. And won pretty handily. And won I mean, pretty that was handily. one we thought would be closer, but uh, really was kind of a one-sided outcome. Yeah, absolutely. What were a couple of the races uh, that you were following on Tuesday night? Well, you talked about the House Education uh, members who had primaries. I think the ones that we were watching really closely as well, and I think a lot of folks around the state were watching, uh, the key members of the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee who had primary challenges. And you got to start with Sean Keogh up in, in Sandpoint, the Senate co-chair, uh, senior member of the Senate. Very high-profile election, very costly election. I mean, she uh, raised north of $80,000 to defend her, her seat in the Senate, wound up winning uh, by a fairly comfortable margin. Uh, other folks on JFAC, uh, Maxine Bell, the House co-chair, uh, won pretty easily, easily. in her uh, legislative district. Wendy Horman, uh, who has been kind of the nuts and bolts budget writer in JFAC for, for K-12, she survived her primary challenge over in Idaho Falls also fairly easily. Uh, Luke Malik, uh, who's also on JFAC, who's been very vocal, visible, uh, high profile on issues like broadband. He had a what we thought was going to be a very uh, contentious and maybe close uh, primary in Coeur d'Alene. He won fairly uh, handily. So stability on the, on the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee, and this is where the whole budget debate begins. This is where the debate is held about teacher pay and literacy and technology in the classroom. So if you're looking for uh, what happens in 2017 on the budget front, 
I would imagine more of the same because uh, the key players who have been uh, on board funding a lot of these initiatives coming out of the task force from 2013, uh, they're still going to be in place. So, uh, And that stability at, at mm -hmm. the top of JFAC will remain in place. That was important on a night for Representative. Of yeah, that was important for Representative Bell because if you remember, her old co-chairman, Senator Dean Cameron, left the Senate, took an appointment with the Insurance Commission, and so Sean Keogh was the new co-chair in the Senate last year. So stability atop JFAC. But on a night where there was turnover. I mean, we had seven incumbent legislators lose in the primary. That's a very high number to see uh, flip in a primary. We mentioned uh, Representative Wills, uh, a couple of hardline legislators lost, uh, Senator Cheryl Nuxel, who had a, a seat on JFAC but was probably best known for uh, pushing the Bible bill uh, this legislative session, she lost. Representative Pete Nielsen of Mountain mm -hmm. Home, uh, I believe he served around seven terms, former House Education Committee member, was beaten fairly handily. Uh, in his legislative race in District 23. And I think it was interesting, District 23 and District 7 both sent multiple incumbents packing mm -hmm. on, on Tuesday night. District 23, I mean, Wills and Nielsen both had served seven terms, so that's, uh, you know, that's you know, 28 years of legislative experience uh, that will be, uh, they'll be replaced in that district. And within uh, District 7, Cheryl Nuxel, we mentioned, uh, the senator lost. Also, uh, House Representative Shannon McMillan of Silverton is a Republican from District 7 as well. Mm -hmm. So those voters jettisoned uh, two incumbents as well. Right. So what, what does it all mean when, when we think about We've had you know a couple days to think about the context and the winners and losers. What does this mean as we look ahead to not forgetting the upcoming November 8th general election and then next year's legislative session? Well, and I think that's been a lot of the dialogue um, in, you know, in the media, also in social media circles. What, what does it all mean? What is this legislature going to look like next year? And I am really loath to try to predict what the legislature is going to look like. You mentioned we do have another election in November. Things do change uh, anytime you have an election and 105 legislative seats, uh, 70 of which are 75 of which are, are contested at, at some level here. So, uh, and we're talking about some new legislators here. We don't know until they actually serve, until right. actually I have to cast some votes, until they have to decide who they want in, in House or Senate leadership. We don't know until they actually have to get down to work what to really expect. We, we may have some indications. We may have some, some inkling, but you know, we'll, we'll see. I talked last week, Kevin, on the pod about how Tuesday's primary, in a way, was going to be a referendum on the clout and influence of the Idaho Freedom Foundation. I mm -hmm. saw them making, putting a lot of resources into three races in particular, uh, Kelly Packer's house race right. in McCammon, uh, Luke Malik's race in North Idaho, and Senator Sean Keogh's race uh, also up in North Idaho. The Freedom Foundation was hoping to unseat all three of those sitting Republican lawmakers. And in each case, that did not happen. The three incumbents all won their legislative primaries despite considerable influence and activity from the Freedom Foundation. Can we read anything into this? Yeah, I think at best for the Freedom Foundation, this was a mixed result. And 
a mixed result with an asterisk. I mean, they, they definitely had a role in a couple of the primary losses. Uh, the, you know, uh, Merrill Beeler in Ledor. Uh, Paul Romrell up in, in, in St. Anthony. Anthony. Those were two races that you could tell that that group really targeted. They had put out a lot of uh, social media uh, material about both of the incumbents. So I, I think, in fairness, you got to say that they were a factor in those uh, primaries, those two primaries particularly. But, you know, let's, let, let's put this into perspective. Where that group put its attention and put its resources were three races, Keogh, Malik, Packer. And they were 0 for 3 in those three races. And if you put that kind of resource and if you put that kind of rhetoric into uh, political campaigns and you come up empty in those three, that's what reverberates. It doesn't just reverberate with you and I and the other reporters. It reverberates with legislators. If you think that legislators are, are not paying attention to this and may be emboldened to, you know, you know vote their conscience or push for, uh, push for issues that they may want to push for, even if it incurs the wrath of, uh, of conservative groups like the Freedom Foundation, that's, that's going to happen. I mean, elections have consequences, and they have consequences on both sides. I mean, if legislators are emboldened to take on the Freedom Foundation, and I wrote about this earlier in the week, Representative Ron Nade. And we've had issues with Representative Ron Nate, as, uh, as you know, viewers, as listeners and readers know. He won a primary when he was opposed by Governor Otter, when Brent Hill put money into his opponent's campaign, when Scott Bedke uh, deliberately did not contribute to Nate's campaign, and he won. So the consequences there, the emboldening there, is for a representative like Nate to say, "Well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to push my agenda on things like." perhaps SBAC, on things like uh, the Blaine Amendment and uh, religious education. What's, you know, he, he's beholden to nobody in political leadership in Idaho at this point, so he'll be interesting to watch. He's so. a very visible lawmaker. It, you have to say at this point that his constituents uh, are familiar with his legislative agenda, and they seem happy. Uh, so they they reelected him. It was a close race. Uh, but he's very visible, and so you have to know that his constituents know uh, where he's focusing his legislative efforts. And they, they, kept, they said they were happy yeah, with him. They, they kept him over a yeah, a fairly well-funded challenger with a very prominent name. That Rick's family name is uh, is big in Madison County, and, and Nate did get uh, get the nomination after all. So a lot that we can look at here uh, when the legislature gets back to town, but. Uh, it is now heading into the summer season, so we'll uh, we'll segue into that, and we'll close with uh, the, the periodic look at where in the world is, in this case, where, where in the world are you going, Clark, and, and where are you leaving uh, leaving for and leaving us behind while, while you go? Yeah, this weekend, I'm super excited. I'm heading out for a, a scuba diving trip with my family. I'm going to the Cayman Islands, going to Grand Cayman, and going to spend a week scuba diving. Uh, actually, my family all got certified together. Gosh, Kevin, almost 20 years ago, uh, I'm almost embarrassed to say. Uh, so we're really looking forward to that, uh, spending some time out, out in the sun, and hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, running into some big sharks and some sea turtles when I'm down diving underwater. So next week, you're going to be running uh, the pod yourself. We're going to be back with a new episode of Extra Credit. Kevin's going to be helming it next week. It Already will talking be, we about... can guarantee it will be a 100% shark-free podcast, <laughs> and hopefully... Uh... Hopefully you'll be admiring sharks from a distance, but yeah, we will be back with another podcast. We've got uh, 
we've got stuff to talk about uh, going into next week as well. All right, I'm leaving it in good hands. I'll be back in two weeks. But as always, thanks so much for listening. Follow Idaho Ed News on Twitter and like us on Facebook to keep the discussion going. Thanks so much. I'm Clark Corbin. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.